Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello, welcome to the Naked Scientist Newsflash with me, Ben Valsler. This week, Chris Smith and Kat Arney are bringing us the latest in science news. Coming up, how metal organic frameworks, or MOFs, may be an option for carbon sequestration. These are molecular cages, and what they consist of are metal atoms at the corners of the molecule, and in between those metal atoms are inorganic or organic linker molecules. This molecule is amazingly good at locking onto CO2. New progress in alleviating the symptoms of cystic fibrosis. Now, around 9 out of 10 people with the disease have a faulty version of CFTR known as DF508 CFTR. And this protein is the wrong shape, and basically the cell breaks it down again once it's made it. But the researchers figured out that if they could stop this faulty version being broken down, then it might work a bit, and surely that would help to relieve some of the symptoms of cystic fibrosis. And that's just what they've managed to do. And a novel way of attacking hepatitis C by blocking a microRNA molecule that we produce but the virus needs to reproduce. So over a period of five months where we kept the microRNA fully suppressed, there was a steady decline on the virus that did not bounce back at any point in time. That's the combination that really creates excitement in the community. Plus, mobile phones are off the hook on brain cancer charges and how aggression may be hardwired into the genes, at least for fruit flies. That's all on the way. Now, with Copenhagen coming up, when world leaders will get together to discuss whether or not there is a global warming problem and what we might be able to do to stop it... uh, Any way in which we can mitigate or reduce the amount of CO2 which is going out into the atmosphere is a very good thing. One of the problems with scavenging or collecting CO2 which is in exhaust streams, and you bear in mind that a big power station, for example, will pump out thousands of tonnes of carbon dioxide just in one afternoon, one problem is how do you get that CO2 from the exhaust of that power station and lock it away somewhere? Well, there are chemicals that can do that. They're they're scrubber chemicals, and one of them uh, that's been investigated is a a family of amine molecules. They're very nasty, though. They're corrosive, they're highly toxic, and once they've soaked up some CO2, trying to get the CO2 back out of them so that you can then reuse the amine and catch some more CO2 uses enormous amounts of energy, and that makes the process very energy inefficient. So... What can we do about it? Well, there's a group of researchers who are actually working on a family of chemicals called MOFs, not things that flutter around with wings, MOFs, metal organic frameworks. These are molecular cages, and what they consist of are metal atoms at the corners of the molecule, and in between those metal atoms are inorganic or organic linker molecules. In fact, this MOF that this guy, David Britt, at the California Nanosystems Institute has made is one called MGMOF74, and it's got magnesium atoms linked together by a chemical called DOT, which is short for 2,5-dioxidoterophthalate. You don't really need to know the details of that, but the important thing is this molecule is amazingly good at locking onto CO2. So if you put it in the path of a stream of gases, of which there is some CO2 and a mixture of other gases, what happens is the CO2 gets sieved out inside this big molecular cage, and it can soak up something like 9% of its own weight in CO2. That's not quite as high as the amine chemicals, which can lock away something like 
10% or 14% of their own weight in CO2. But the real breakthrough is that you can easily get the CO2 back out of this stuff. You just warm it up. You make it about 80 or 90 degrees. All the CO2 comes back out. You can then sequester it somewhere safely and you regenerate this stuff and you can keep using it again and again and again. And so they're saying that this will be a very good molecule to incorporate into things like flue gas streams because then you could scavenge back all the CO2 that energy plants are putting out. Cap. That sounds like a really good idea. Now, uh, helping us to breathe easily um, is in a slightly different way. Researchers in California have discovered a way to partially repair damaged lung cells from people with cystic fibrosis. This is an inherited disease that affects more than 70,000 people around the world and it causes severe problems with uh, the lungs and digestion and those kind of organs. Now, these results are published in the journal Nature Chemical Biology this week and they're from a team led by Professor William Balk at the Scripps Research Institute. What have they done? Well, it all centres on protein processing. So when proteins are made in our cells, they're folded up into the correct shape. But if there's a fault in the protein or in this folding process, then the protein doesn't work properly and the cell goes, oh, this doesn't work and breaks it down again. Now, in cystic fibrosis, the disease is caused by faults in a gene that makes a protein called CFTR. This normally sits on the surface of cells and it shuttles salts, uh, sodium and chloride, across the cell membrane. Now, around 9 out of 10 people with the disease have a faulty version of CFTR known as DF. 508 CFTR and this protein is the wrong shape and basically the cell uh, breaks it down again once it's made it Uh, it gets broken down because it doesn't work properly but the researchers figured out that if they could stop this faulty version being broken down then it might work a bit and surely that would help to relieve some of the symptoms of cystic fibrosis and that's just what they've managed to do how well, they used a drug called, OK, I hate this bit, seboroyl anilide hydroxamic acid. It's or easy for S-A- them to say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, S-A-H-A for short, I'll stick with that, which blocks enzymes called histone deacetylases. Now, I, you may have heard me talking about these before because I love all these kind of proteins. These proteins normally work to affect uh, the kind of packaging around DNA in the nucleus of the cell and they switch genes on and off. But recently it's been found that they're also involved in processing proteins So the researchers tested this drug on lung cells that were taken from cystic fibrosis patients with this particular DF508 fault. And they found that the drug, SAHA, restores the level of the CFTR activity by up to about 28% of that compared with normal lung cells. So it's not 100%, but then I suppose people who carry cystic fibrosis genes, their carrier, they only have 50% activity anyway, so it's not actually far off the 50%. Well, exactly. It could be enough to make a real difference. So, for example, patients with less severe cystic fibrosis, they have around sort of 15 to 30% levels of their CFTR activity. They have, you know, near enough a normal lifestyle. They do have some problems. But the uh, researchers were looking at really severe faults, you know, when both copies of the chromosome are broken. Um, So actually being able to restore up to 28% of lung cell function could be really significant. And also importantly, they found that the drug works best at quite low doses and that's important if you're going to take a drug like this forward to clinical trials um, because it it has also been tested in clinical trials for cancer being given in large doses over a short time but for cystic fibrosis you'd want to give it in low doses over a long period of time Um, so these results are quite promising and the researchers also think that it might work in other diseases where faulty proteins are involved so things like type 2 diabetes maybe arthritis osteoporosis or even alzheimer's disease incredible especially given how common cystic fibrosis this is um, with the number of people who actually carry that gene you see very many cases of it so that's very very promising isn't it absolutely 
Now, also this week, there's a very interesting paper published, and this, this cat has got to be an example of nominative determinism. It's about mobile phones and whether or not they can give you brain cancer. But the lady who's done the work is actually called Isabel, which I think is really quite touching. Is Isabel Del Tour. Uh, she's actually from the Danish Cancer Society, and she has a paper in the Journal of the National Cancer Institute this week. And what they've done is to say, let's have a look over a very long period of time at the rates of various cranial cancers and neoplasms, tumours. So they were looking at gliomas, malignant brain tumours, and also meningiomas, non-malignant brain tumours. And what they did was to just sum up how many people had these things over a 20 or 30 year period. So they collected every single case they could find between 1973 and 2003 their thinking was that this period completely spans or sort of overlaps the time when mobile phones were first introduced to the population. So it was both before and after. And what they were looking to see if, is if there was any change in the frequency of, of cranial tumours during that time in response to the introduction of mobile phones. And this was on populations in Scandinavia. And what they found was there was absolutely no difference whatsoever in the rate at which tumours were cropping up in the population before and after the introduction of mobile phones in the mid-90s. And the point they make is that there could be three reasons for this. One is that it could be that the effect of mobile phones could be just so small that their study is too small to detect that difference. Another is that this study offers insight on a lead time of 5 to 10 years. In other words, they've been looking at 5 to 10 years of exposure. That could be too soon to see an effect. The third possibility is that there just isn't an effect and mobile phones are safe. So in the meantime, we can't say that it's absolutely no evidence that mobile phones are linked to any cancer, but looking at very large numbers of people over a five to ten year period has failed so far to show any difference. Kat. Yeah, that's true. And in fact, if you look, uh, even in the UK, you just look at the statistics of the number of people with brain tumours, they are in fact going down, I think, very slightly, rather than going up. So uh, there are studies that are underway, much bigger studies, looking prospectively at mobile phone use. So we'll have to wait for sort of 20 years to see the results of those. But yeah, there's not a lot of solid scientific evidence about that. But from uh, mobile phones to fruit flies, um, and uh, I don't know, Chris, are you an aggressive person? Would you say you're an aggressive man? Maybe, under certain circumstances. It depends if someone steals my breakfast, like my daughter did this morning. Would you have a fight in a pub or something like that? Actually, I've never done that, but I know someone who has. Uh, it's not not Ben, is it? Anyway, researchers from Caltech, the uh, California Institute of Technology, have made a step forward in understanding how aggression may be hardwired into the genes, well, at least for fruit flies. Uh, now, this is research from Professor David Anderson and his colleagues writing in the journal Nature this week, and they found a chemical pheromone that controls aggression in flies, and they've also pinpointed the nerve cells in their antennae that detect these pheromones and send signals to the brain, telling them flies to, you know, start kicking it all off. I'm a bit worried about this because you, you asked me if I was an aggressive person you're talking about flies and pheromones. I'm not a fly. Um, don't we already know about fly pheromones, though? Well, we do know a bit about insect pheromones. We've known for a while that insects can respond aggressively to certain chemicals when they're presented with artificial versions of them. But we don't know how much they use these pheromones normally to control their aggression. And to prove it, the scientists had to track down the exact receptors in the insect nerve cells that receive these chemical signals, something that at the moment can only be done using fruit flies, as scientists know quite a lot about their nervous system. Now, the scientists discovered that a chemical called... What do I get all the names this week? 11 cis vaccinal acetate or CVA for short can make pairs of male flies get aggressive and they rear up on their hind legs and start 
bashing each other with their forelegs. And when they put pairs of male flies near a little mesh cage containing other males that were producing this chemical, they became aggressive. So, uh, But when researchers silenced the nerve cells that respond to this chemical, the flies no longer showed the aggressive behaviour. So if you put loads of male flies together in one place, that promotes aggression. And is that because they're making lots of this chemical then? Yes, and this was something that the researchers could actually test. Now, male fruit flies, they like to gather on food because it gives them opportunities to mate with passing female flies and also to feed. Now, normally they all kind of rub along okay, but if there's too many male flies, then obviously there there might be a sort of too many to mate effectively or to feed effectively. So the researchers took male flies that had been genetically manipulated to have hypersensitive nerve cells that detect the CVA chemical. And they found that when these flies gathered on food... It was basically a massive fight uh, and they all fought each other until there was just one successful fly left. But when they tested unmodified flies, they all just kind of, you know, just got on with it and sat there together. Oh, to be that fly. So what does that actually tell us about this aggressive behaviour then? Well, the researchers think that when the population of male flies gets too high, then the levels of this chemical rise because obviously there's lots of flies producing this hormone, uh, this pheromone. So this makes the flies aggressive. They start fighting and they drive away some of the male flies. And as they fly off, obviously the concentration of the chemical will drop and the flies will calm down, calm down, and the cycle kind of keeps repeating. Now, at the moment, they've done this just in the lab, but they think it should be possible to find out if this is happening in the wild. And of course, it would be interesting to see if these kind of chemicals might be at work in, uh, in humans. Maybe we should go down some nightclubs where there's a lot of men and, uh, and do some measuring. Perish the thought of a giant human fly paper. Thank you, Kat. Now, also in the news this week, actually in the paper, in the journal Science, sorry, there's a paper which highlights a potential new treatment for hepatitis C. Now, this new paper describes a molecule which will target hepatitis C by attacking a microRNA, a short piece of genetic material which liver cells make and which seems to be absolutely critical for the virus to be able to replicate or grow. And that stops when this microRNA is neutralised, the virus in its tracks. And one of the people who's helped to make this possible is Dr. Henrik Urom, who's from Santaris Pharma. And he's with us now. Hello, Henrik. Hi. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Uh, so please Thank tell you. us, first of all, um, what is the problem with hepatitis C actually treating it at the moment with existing therapy? Well, at this time, there's probably about uh, a couple of hundred millions of uh, hepatitis C sufferers worldwide. Uh, and the standard of care is uh, a combination of uh, uh, interferon and ribavirin, which is effective in only about 50% uh, and associated with significant uh, adverse effects. So what you're saying is that we can't do much about hepatitis C at this stage, so we we have a strong need for better therapies. There's absolutely a very strong need for new therapies. And what have you done? So what we've done is we've taken a non-traditional approach. uh, Rather than uh, trying to attack the virus directly, we're attacking it indirectly by sequestering a host factor that the virus uses uh, for its replication. Um, And what it turns out is that When we do that, we get a drug that uh, is very potent in the chimpanzee model, which is uh, the only uh, other species than humans that can contrive HCV. So it packs a combination of uh, very good potency uh, and good safety, uh, and then a unique uh, barrier uh, to uh, resistance. So first of all, tell us, what is the new drug and how does it work? It works by uh, binding to and uh, sequestering a uh, endogenous uh, microRNA called microRNA122 that is uh, specifically expressed in the liver. 
and which the virus uses uh, for its uh, replicative cycle. Uh, and sequestering this basically removes it from the virus and hence stops the virus replicating. Why should the virus rely on a human cellular factor, this microRNA, to grow at all? Why does it need that? Well, viruses uh, depends on a lot of uh, host factors. They do not uh, encode all of the functions they need to complete their life cycle. So when they enter cells, they do co-opt a lot of uh, different host factors uh, to uh, complete that. And your new agent, how does it work? What does it do to that microRNA in the liver cells to make it so that the cells will no longer allow the hepatitis C to grow there? Well, the microRNA in the uh, HIV-infected liver cell uh, basically binds to two sites in the 5' end of the HCV genome. Uh, and all the, although the mechanism by which this binding uh, facilitates replication is not entirely known in details at this point, it is known to be a direct binding event between the microRNA and the HCV genome. So in some way that microRNA encourages the virus, it, it enables the virus to copy its genetic material? So what our drug does is it uh, binds competitively to the microRNA and sequesters it uh, in a form that it can no longer bind to the HCV genome. Where else in the body would your cells make microRNA-122, this particular linchpin? And, and does your drug therefore have the potential to inactivate a key component of cells in other bits of the body and therefore cause side effects? Uh, all present data suggests that microRNA-122 is a liver-specific uh, microRNA. Uh, and it's uh, in the normal uh, function involved in the uh, uh, biosynthesis and metabolism of uh, lipid and cholesterol. Uh, so uh, what we observe uh, as the only other effect so far in extensive toxin pharmacology studies uh, when we inhibit the microRNA-122 is the expected uh, reduction in uh, plasma levels of cholesterol. And so when you inhibit this particular microRNA in the liver with your drug, what happens to the hepatitis C-infected chimpanzees you were trying it on? So we, uh, in, uh, we injected them once weekly for 12 weeks, and during the whole dosage periods, we saw a steady decrease of uh, virus uh, titers, both in plasma in, in, and in, uh, in the liver. Uh, and at the end of dosing, uh, this effect uh, lasted a couple of months uh, post-dosing, uh, consistent with the fairly long half-life of the drug. So over a period of five months where we kept the uh, microRNA uh, fully suppressed in these gyms, uh, there was a steady decline and a, a very uh, strong response uh, on the virus that did not bounce back at any point in time. I think that's this combination of a good response on the virus and a safe treatment, but combined with uh, the apparent complete absence of a viral breakthrough through this extended period of time. That's the combination that really creates excitement in the community. And the next step, just briefly, is presumably now to try this in humans. Yes, we've so far conducted the first uh, study in, in healthy volunteers. It's a single-dose study, single-ascending-dose study. We're currently uh, conducting a multiple-ascending-dose study to uh, define the dose and the dosing schedules when we hopefully move to patients uh, uh, in the near future. We haven't quite uh, uh, worked out the design and the, uh, where those studies are going to be uh, conducted and, and when, but uh, we will set up a patient's information center on our homepage uh, where patients interested in this new drug 
uh, candidate uh, can get the relevant information. And you can get more relevant information in the Journal of Science this week. And the drug that uh, Henrik was talking about is SPC3649. That was Dr. Henrik Urom, who is from Santaris Pharma. They published a new molecule this week that they hope will help to uh, get rid of hepatitis C. And that's all we have for this Naked Scientist Newsflash, which was produced by me, Ben Valsler, and featured Chris Smith, Kat Arney, and our guest, Dr. Henrik Uhlen from Santaris Pharma in Denmark. You can read about all of these stories and more on our website at thenakedscientists.com, where you can also find all of our other science podcasts. We'll be back with another roundup of science news very soon. The Naked Scientist Newsflash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.